0: Hi, book lovers. This is Ellen Hildebrand, selling author of 30 books, including The Hotel Nantucket and The Perfect Couple.
1: And this is Tim Ehrenberg, creator of Tim Talks Books. And you're listening to Books, Beach, and Beyond, presented by N Magazine.
0: We'll be diving into the wonderful world of books and featuring special guests from bestselling and award-winning writers, publishing industry insiders, agents and editors, book influencers,
1: and more. There's nothing Ellen and I love more than talking about books. And our favorite question to ask each other is, what are you reading? But we'll go even further here on the show, exploring the craft of writing, the process of book publishing, and that wonderful connection a reader has with a favorite book.
0: But before we head into our episode, we wanna take this opportunity to thank our incredible premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, The Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina and Nantucket Looms.
1: Without their generous support, we wouldn't be able to bring you these fascinating conversations with some of the most dynamic leaders from the book world. So, thank you.
0: And now, on to the show.
1: Hi, Ellen. Hi, Tim. So, I always start these episodes with a with a deeper, bigger question, and I want to start today with fictional characters that you've really resonated with, whether it's someone that you really saw yourself in or a loved one in, who are those for you?
0: So I'm going to give you three because I'm older. And so, and, and they resonated at different parts of my life. The mm-hmm. first one is Franny Glass, which is from Franny and Zoe by JD J. Salinger. Love Franny. She's a super deep, deeply troubled young woman. She resonated with me when I was a teenager. I, yeah. I loved Franny Glass. I love that's one of my favorite books of all time. Another one of my favorite books of all time, Family Happiness by Laurie Colwin, mm-hmm. as you know. And Polly Demarest in that book, you know, she's a beleaguered mother of two, and she has sort of a secret life going on. I oh, I love Polly. She's what one of my very favorite women characters. And then thirdly, is Ginny from A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley. Mm. Uh, she's a farm wife, and when I retire. I also want to be a a farm (laughs) wife.
1: Okay, that is quite the switch in life. But okay, I love those answers. She's always
0: making pie or putting together potato salad. I'm like, that's going to be me.
1: I mean, I love that book. I have two. And one, I don't really resonate with and that I have anything in common with. But Jude from A Little Life just led such a traumatic I wanted to be his friend and try to help him so much. I know know you feel that way. And it it just was such a... I've never read so deeply and full. And the other one I'm going to save because he is the creation of our esteemed guest today, Frederick Bachman. He is the number one New York Times bestselling author of A Man Called Uva*. My Grandmother Asked Me to Tell You She's Sorry, Britt Marie Was Here, Beartown, Us Against You, and The Winners recently out in paperback and Anxious People, as well as two novellas and one work of nonfiction. His books are published in more than 40 countries. He lives in Stockholm, Sweden, with his wife and two children. You can connect with him on Facebook and Twitter, at Bachmanland, and on Instagram, BachmanSK. Ever since I picked up Beartown, I have waited anxiously for each book he has written. I'm one of his biggest fans. I'm thrilled to have him here with us today, all the way from Sweden. Welcome to Book Speech and Beyond, Frederick Bachman.
2: I feel the intro is setting me up for disappointment. Oh, never.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to wow them, Frederick. Don't you worry. So I'm going to start by asking you, because Tim and I have never met you, I'd like to ask you your origin story. So what did you do? What was your path to becoming a novelist?
2: And what did you do before? It wasn't intentional, and I, I still don't. I don't view myself as an author. I view myself as th- this is something that they're letting me do for a little while. <laughs> and then people will come to their senses and I'll go back to doing something else. I finished high school. I didn't know what, what I was going to do. I, I went to university just so that everyone would stop asking me what I was going to do with my life. I was going to study to journalism. And I ended up studying religion instead for three years. Until the professors there started Asking me like, is is this? Are you going someplace? Are you? Is there a plan here, or are you just you know selecting random courses? So I I, I dropped out. I had a bunch of odd jobs. This was in my early twenties. I I was a bus boy. I was an exterminator for a while. I, I I and then I drove a forklift at a warehouse where my my best friend was a manager. So so he got me a job together with another friend of his. That friend actually won Swedish Idol. A couple of years later oh, and I, I became fact. published. So my best friend, he, he called us and he said, I'm so glad you're doing well because you were horrible at this job and I, I, I can can never take you back. So, so <laughs> you know, this career of yours, they better work. So I, I drove a forklift and I had this idea that I wanted to write. I didn't know what it was what I wanted to write. I just had this idea that uh, if I could write for a living, that would be better than, than driving a forklift. So I said, all right, I'll, I'm going to work nights and weekends and I'm going to give myself a year. And if I can not find a way to work as a writer in a year, some in some form or fashion, I'll just, I'll go back to university and I'll try to figure out like a a real career of some sorts and you know, I'll, I'll get a proper job. So I just, I, I just, emailed every magazine that I could find and I said, I'll, I'll write for free. And this was at a time when there was still magazines around. So you could actually get a few odd jobs and, and it just went from there. And I figured out that I could be, I figured out pretty early on that maybe I can be funny. You know, maybe I can be that guy the, who writes the column that people write angry emails about to the, <laughs> <laughs> to the editorial staff. Maybe I can be, maybe I can be the ob- obnoxious guy. So I was down guy for a while, and I learned how to write from from that. I think, and then I started getting odd jobs here and there for a bunch of different magazines. And I wrote for so many different kinds of magazines that I think that's how I learned how to write. Because one week I would write for a um, women's magazine for for women fifty five and over, and the other week I would write, you know, this is a this is a magazine for. Men in their twenties who likes cars and, and it was just I wrote for a parenting magazine before I had kids and I, I so I just learned how to imitate i I read the magazines I learned how to imitate their voice, like oh, this is kind of what they want, so I learned how to do that that's how I started writing, and then i you know i I had this idea for the first novel and and you know that's a long process and a long story too but but I think it came from that, but the only when I wrote the novel, it was just, I just wanted to see if I could do it. So A Man Called Uva is one of those books, iconic books on the shelves
1: now. On, in any bookstore, it's kind of a shock who hasn't read it. What's the story about that one? What is that, that story actually about? And who did you see first? Was there a plot point you saw first? Like, what was that? But what was the story you set out to write there? Well, first of all, very good pronunciation on Uva. I I, pract- I looked it up.
2: Very good. <laughs> Five plus. <laughs> I always try to explain to people that it's, it's like the middle part of Hoover. Mm, that's, a, that's a good one.
1: There is actually a whole uh, YouTube uh, that your publicist, I think Ariel, put out that has yeah. the pronunciations. And at the end it said... He
2: it, has worked very hard on this. She's also worked very hard when, when we went on tour, Ariel, because Ariel was my publicist. And now she's my agent. But when we went on tour... She she realized when people asked how to pronounce my my last name she said it's like the chicken Buckman.
1: <laughs> we Ellen and I are big fans of Ariel. Yeah, so we love. Her. I know she's listening, so we love you. But anyway, back to the book.
2: I had this idea for a long time about this man who is annoyed by everything, and I had this. I worked as an exterminator for a while, and and I had to go to these. I don't know what you call it, but but. Um, you have a little garden, like there's a bunch of gardens and you you, you have a little plot where you can grow things. It's like a, a big area that you go through one gate and there was I always had to go there to chase rats and wasps and whatnot. And there was always a man in charge. He was always annoyed by me and he always had a bunch of rules and you could never drive a car in there. You could never, it was like, it was just this man who's annoyed by everything. And I kind of collected these men during the summers that I worked as an exterminator because everywhere I went, there was a man like him who was like my contact person. Like I had to go find him. He was always annoyed. There was always a bunch of rules. There was always... And and so that character was kind of in my head. Like maybe I could do something with that character at some point because it's funny. It's funny that he's annoyed by everything. Um. I started the blog because that was the you know beginning of the blog phenomenon. There was another blogger a friend of mine, Yunus Trombi, who he was at a museum and he wrote about this experience with a man who got into a fight with the staff at the museum because the man mispronounced the name of an of an artist, and someone in the staff corrected him, and this man could not take it, so there was like this huge argument holding up an entire line. Because he he could not he just couldn't back down. At the end of that argument, he he rolled up like the the little pamphlet you get from the museum with all the exhibitions. He started rolling this up in his hand and he started holding it like a police baton in his hand. And and Yuna just described this so funny. And then this man's wife took took this man by the arm and said, Come now, Uva, let's go. You know, enough of this. Let's go, Uva. And my wife read that and she said, you know, Frederick, this is, this is what it's like living with you. <laughs> this, this is going anywhere with you. This is what it's like, because you get into these stupid arguments about principles. So I started blogging, like I started writing blog posts, times in my life where my wife thinks I've been a man called Uva. Gotcha. So I started writing these blog posts and then people, you know, who read the blog started you know, they started telling little anecdotes about their fathers and about their husbands, and so at some point, I just felt, well, this, this man, this the the, the funnier parts of it, the parts that comes from me, maybe that can merge into this man who is annoyed by everything, because the man who is annoyed by every anything, everything is not, there's no comedy there and there's no heart there. That's just, you know, he was just a bitter character. But I felt like maybe I can write something around this to make it something else. So I asked Jonas, you know, can I use the name? Can I, use, can, can I steal the name from you and, and go see if I can do something of this? And he gave me his blessing and off I went. You did it.
0: So this book was popular in Sweden and then later published in America. Can you talk about the differences between publishing a book in Sweden and publishing a book in America? I imagine it's quite different.
2: Everything is bigger in the U.S. Yeah. Uh, everything is faster. People are People, I think people in the publishing industry are way more honest. Like they'll, they'll tell you straight up what they think. So it was a little bit of a culture shock. I think if you come from a small country, so always going to be a little bit of a culture shock. Just like if you're from a small town in the, in America and you move to New York, it's a little bit of a culture shock. It's the same way. You know, I never imagined that it would be published in the, in America. I never If I would have known that I wouldn't have named the character Uwe, because would, the thing with Uwe is that it's a really common na- Swedish name for a man who's 59 years old. Right. Like, the super common name, which is, that was the joke. Like, I felt, if I call it A Man Called Uva, then people will think it's funny. You know, they're going to be, why would you name a book, like, it's A Man Called John or A right, Man Called right, Steve. Right right yeah like right. Why, why would you name a book that and then it got translated and that joke was just out the window and no one was... <laughs> gotcha um, so but i i uh, but i think the, the the main difference is the audience in the u.s have been a lot more encouraging to me switching genres it was never a problem in america that yeah, I, I wrote three books that were labeled as comedies, and then I wrote Bear Town. Right. And that was, ne- like, rarely, I mean, very rarely does anyone in America, like, ask me about that. Like, why would you change genres? Because the American audience is so used to that, I think. that That's so ingrained in the American audience that writers... You know, they do different things and they try different things. And it's, uh, you know, you follow a writer, some things you like and some things you don't, and some, you know, it's, it's just, whereas in, in, I think in Scandinavia for a long time, it's been very, I don't know the word, but maybe formulate, can you say that? Is that a word? It's very like very, this is your genre. So if you start in this genre, then you're in this genre forever. I think in, in Sweden, I still, if I do interviews, I'm still just the guy who wrote a man called Uba. But in America, I'm, I'm the guy who actually wrote a couple of other books too. Mm-hmm.
0: One of the things that I find, so I I've written 30 novels. One of the things I find is that, and I've d- done it over 23 years. So I I have a it's changed still,
2: still it, a lot of books in 23 it, years. It's a lot of books. <laughs>
0: I it's changed. For me, because what's new now, Frederick, is that I have to do not only the writing, but also the marketing in some sense with social media. And and you get everybody's feedback right away if people are not shy to tell you they didn't care for your novel. How do you feel about, have you participated in the social media sort of mania that American publishing entails?
2: I mean, I'm not great at social media. My Instagram account is mostly it's mostly stories about my dog. Oh, uh,
1: People I'm not. That.
2: I'm, not a, I'm not a great marketer, and and it was incredibly challenging to me in the beginning in America, but, but in, in Europe too, it was incredibly challenging to me to grasp the fact that you wrote a book, probably because you don't go out much, and you know you're not the super sociable guy. Because you probably wouldn't spend eight hours a day alone in a room with people you made up in your head. So this idea that now you're a brand, now you have to think your brand, this idea that your books are products like they're, you know, the, the bag of potato chips. And that was, it was really challenging for me in the beginning. It's still really challenging for me at times. I've just been very fortunate that as I've gone along. You know, I work with my wife. She handles everything. Everything that's business, she handles. She handles everything in reality, and I haven't handled everything in imagination.
0: Okay, that's such a good. That's a good uh, division of labor. I'm in right charge of
2: making things up. She's in charge of everything else. But but it's it is, but it has been challenging. It's still challenging. I think the social media thing is incredibly tough. I think it's incredibly tough for young writers. I think the pressure to be something, to like make up a personality about yourself, to 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 be to be a brand, to you know, how many followers do you have? All that I think it's destructive to a lot of people. I think the pressure gets to people a lot. I think I've struggled a lot with the fact that I I didn't want to be famous. Like I don't want people, I'm I'm not comfortable with people recognizing me in the street. I bet. I'm not yeah. I do well with that. So I've learned along the way, I, you know, I've done a lot of U.S. tours, being on stage. That was something I had to learn. That was really hard. Had a lot of panic, anxiety attacks in the beginning. I had a lot of times where I, I, I just, you know, I, I, I had an event. Everyone told me like, this went really good, Fred, you, you did well. And there was a signing and I, you know, and everyone was like excited and I was like this, this must be a dream come through for you. Like you, you this, this must be, have been you know, your, your highest dream. And I went back to the hotel room when I was just lying on the floor, you know, struggling with this panic and panic anxiety attacks, and and just calling my wife, crying, telling her I don't know why, I, I I don't know this person that they want me to be. I don't know who that is. Right. So I did struggle a lot, and I have struggled with social media. But with all that said, there's also a thing that that, and I think this is important. I have this. Huge privilege of not being a woman when I'm on social media because it is it's so much harder for female novelists. very rarely do someone say that I'm a bad parent because I go on a tour like but this is something that a female writer gets like all the time. You have kids. how can you go on tour? like no one asks me that like right. it's just for granted that I think a lot of the. People are harder on women in general, in society, but on social media, especially, I think. Yeah. So I I, I still think I'm still got off easy, I think.
0: All right, we're gonna take a quick break so we can thank one of our premier sponsors, Marine Home Center. The beauty of Nantucket has long inspired homeowners to create wonderful places to live. And Marine Home Center has been the go-to island resource for almost 80 years. On a five-acre campus overlooking Nantucket Harbor, contractors and homeowners find proven high-performance building materials and hardware, as well as a wide selection of appliances, furniture, floor coverings, paint, garden supplies, and so much more. Marine Home Center's experts are always here to help you build, decorate, and live on Nantucket. Discover more at MarineHomeCenter.com.
1: We love Marine Home Center, and I didn't really realize how many things they actually provide for this island. Like, did you know that they have 24-7 pickup lockers for online orders when they're not open? I did not know that.
0: I get all of my appliances at Marine Home Center because then they will come fix it. That is like my number one
1: Oh, yes. Reason. Smart. You're smart. Also, interior design services. I don't know if people think about that when they think about Marine Home Center, oh, but yeah. they have a great staff that help you with interior yeah. design for your nanosecond homes. Yeah, I did White glove delivery. I love white glove delivery. They take away all
0: the trash,
1: mm-hmm. and th- that's a furniture rug. That makes mattresses. me happy.
0: They're do they're ordering the runner for my new renovation. Dan boy, shout out to Dan boy.
1: Hardware, paint, garden supplies, grilling
0: supplies. I think it's safe to say that if you need something, look no further than
1: Marine Home Center. One hundred percent, Ellen. Thank you, Thank Marine you, Home Marine. Center. One place I know that's where you're much- comfortable. Is at your writing desk and writing books, and so talk a little bit about your writing process. Are you a? What's the question that authors get asked all the time? Are you a pantser or are you a plotter? Do you plot everything out, or do you do you know where you're
2: going, or do you make it up as you go along? I think I'm more of a pantser. Okay, I think uh, because I'm not, I'm plotting a lot, but in only in my head. I don't know if you do. are you do it when when you write? I mean, you've written so many books. I, I imagine you. I don't plot. I. I have it uh, very much like you just said.
0: I know I sort of know what's going to happen, but then even yesterday, I write longhand. Even yesterday, I got to a moment, and in that moment, I changed. I changed my mind because I or I saw an opportunity and I took it. That kind of thing. So I don't stick to an
2: outline. You write longhand, like how the whole script you write Mm -hmm. long. Yes. And then you transcribe it. I put it in the computer. Yeah. On yellow notepads. Yeah. That's fantastic. No, I take a lot of notes, but it's like it's it's a very chaotic process. I have no there's no order or like I, I'll I'll i write a little notes. Oh this would be a good line or this would be uh this would be a good idea for this, or maybe this you know, maybe this character can say this at some point and it's just random notes, and then I lose the notepads all the time. So right and I write on the back I'll have an idea I'll write it on the back of an envelope and then Three weeks later I'll running around the apartment like honey have you seen a, an envelope right I wrote something on the back of an envelope you know have you seen she's like no
0: <laughs> well I loved Beartown I loved 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 it I want to talk about hockey your choice to have hockey be the thing that unites the town unites the community is that typical in Sweden and did you pl- or is it something particular to you did you play
2: Yeah, the community thing, it's, it's, uh, I was looking for that. I think in a small town, it's very common in Sweden that it's, the town is famous for something. And, and uh, I was interested in that there are certain communities in Sweden. I think it's the same way in, in US and Canada. There's certain places where, you know, what's that place famous for? Oh, that's where the factory of that company, that's where they make this. You know, that's the town where they make the cars, or that's the town where they make this. But certain places are, oh, that's the team, that, that's the team, town with the team. Right. Like you, you, say a, you say a place and people immediately say the name of the team. I've, I've always been fascinated by that. I'm, I'm, I grew up in a smaller town, not as small as Bear town, but smaller than Stockholm where I live now. And, and, and I was in, I've always been interested in this culture around a team, where the team is so important that it starts to affect everything. And and in Beartown, I was interested in the fact that maybe I can write this in a way where this team is also like a company. Like, people are actually employed, and the team makes money for the town, and it's like if the team does well, sponsors will, you know, money will pour into the town, we'll get more visitors, we'll get you know, maybe we can build a shopping mall, maybe we can build an airport, maybe we can be one of those expanding places. Um, but the team is like, the team is the ticket to that. The team is the key to that. Like the team is what we're famous for. And during the Beartown series, I, I kind of explored that because that was a big thing in the northern part of Sweden for a couple of years that, you know, to host the, the skiing World Cup, to be able to host that because that, because it's a huge amount of money that all of a sudden flows into a small community if you can host a, a World Cup in anything. So I it came from came from that, and it came from and hockey came from the fact that I like that it. I think it's interesting that it's so hard. It's hard to play. It demands in, it demands incredible grace to be able to skate, but it's also insanely violent and and powerful. So you have this. Technique and force, this, this grace and violence, and I, I'm fascinated by that. Uh, it's the only sport I didn't play when I was growing up. Oh, you didn't? Uh, play I, I find everything that shocking. Else. No, yeah. Oh, no, but I played everything else. So That was the, the thing was I I, I liked the sport. The, the sport itself is hard, and I also liked the fact that that. But I was also interested in the fact that people, people who play hockey identify themselves with hockey like every uh, people say we're a hockey family yeah
1: mm-hmm.
2: very rarely do you hear people say we're a, we're a volleyball family <laughs> <laughs> did you know there were multiple books with it i had the idea that i wanted it to be a trilogy i had like an idea of the i had an idea of where like this is where i'm going to begin and if i get to if they let me write three books this is how it's going to end okay so I have, like, to the extent I'm a plotter, I have the beginning and the ending. And then everything in between can be a little chaotic, but I know where I'm going. I know the emotion that I want you to have when you close the book. But, but I also wanted each book to be a whole story. I didn't want a cliffhanger in the, at the end. I wanted it to be a full novel. I wanted you to have closure. If you only want to read the first one, you'll, you'll get closure and if you only want if you want to read the second one, you still get closer. You don't have to read the third one. It's just I wanted each book to be a full book. It's one thing. And yeah,
1: I, Ellen has written two series, and I always have that question of how did you keep how did people keep track of the characters and like you were growing them, but did you like did you reread the first book always to make sure that they're the same and like plot points, or did you have other people? And I don't I guess I don't even know how you did that necessarily with the Winter Street
2: series.
0: I had to reread them. Yeah. I have
2: no help. I needed to ask people who had worked with me on the last book. Like, have I? Have it? Does this make sense? Have I done this before? Have I? Because you will get lost a couple of times, and sometimes people. So I, I didn't fall into. There are, you know, I've heard stories from crime writers who forgot they killed off a character. <laughs> someone will definitely. Uh, you know, the character just reemerges, and someone said, you know, they. You know, you killed this character in the last book. Oh, oh. Yeah. So it happens. But on the point of, of, if I can just say that, on the point of, I didn't play hockey when I grew up, but I played every other sport there was. Because I couldn't get to and from the ice rink. My parents worked a lot. So I could play anything that I could get to and from myself. Mm -hmm. But the fact that I didn't play hockey, it really helped me when I was writing the book because I was an insider because I knew sports. I knew the locker room, I knew the mentality, I knew the culture, but I've never played hockey, so I was also an outsider. Right. And that really helps. If if you're going to write something, it really, really helps to be an insider and an outsider at the same time. Like, I know this environment, but I'm not one of you.
1: Yeah. I want to spend a few minutes on one of my all-time favorite characters in fiction. I started this episode by asking Ellen who are some characters that she's resonated with or resonated with a loved one. And one of mine is Benji. As a gay man, my coming out was a struggle 20 years ago. And reading Benji's story was just one of those things that I resonated. So I saw so much of myself in him and all of the things that he was going through. So I have so many Benji questions, but I'll ask two to be as concise as I can. How did you come up with him? And was he based on someone? And I guess I have three. Like, Why do you think so many people love him so much? Because I really do think he's someone that people
2: just love on the page. He's a combination of, of several people. My characters are very rarely based on one person. It's like orange juice takes a lot of oranges to make one glass of juice. takes a lot of real people to make one one good character so he he is based on he's based on a couple of different people that I grew up with. It was just one of those characters that just went looking for I knew who he was I knew this this person of the um, who struggles, and and I think if if there's something that people responded to or or recognized or felt something for, it's the fact that he's, he's hurting. I mean, first of all, I wanted I wanted the first 150 pages to be the stereotype of a sports story. One of the greatest compliments I've gotten was there was a hockey coach in that I was stood up at at a book talk I had there, and it was this big guy who looked like he could. You know, put me through a wall if he wanted to, and and he stood up. and He was a little annoyed, but he was also you know very emotional. That that you know he's annoyed because his wife had given him this book, and she said, you know, you love this. It's about hockey. It's a nice hockey story. And she didn't tell him the, that it was going to take a turn. And when it did, it he said it, when it did he he was he was so he was crushed. He couldn't he couldn't even. Because it resonated with him, because he had seen this, he had understood, you know, this was something that got very personal to him very quickly. and and But the fact that he was kind of lured into it, that was why he was annoyed. And that was also my intention, that that I wanted to be that. I wanted Benji to have this thing where he's not afraid that anyone will hurt him if they find out who he is. He's not afraid to get beaten up. He's not afraid of anyone. He has no fear of that. His fear is that he will walk into the locker room and everyone will fall silent because they were making a joke and now they can't make that joke in front of him. That's what he's afraid of. He's afraid of not, like, he's afraid of the silence. He's afraid of not being part of this group because that's the only place he's, he's ever felt like this is a role that I can play.
1: mm mm-hmm.
2: Is there a it's character sad. of
1: your own that you resonate with, like that you've created that that's most like you? And I want to give the same question to Ellen. Like, is there someone in your books that it's like, yeah, that's pretty much me on the page?
2: If you ask my wife, it's, I think it's Britt Marie, and Britt Marie was here. <laughs> 63-year-old, very passive-aggressive woman. <laughs> very passive-aggressive. Not uh, what I would have
1: guessed, but I love it.
2: Uh, that's, my, that's That's my wife's answer. That's the one who's most like him. But I think in, in Beartown, it's, you know, it's always, I, I imagine it's the same for you. There's, there's a little bit of you in every character. Yeah. You Because you have to find something that you can connect to. You have to find something that you have. I always look for the smallest thing we have in common.
0: Yeah. Well, you have to love I them. Think- you have to love them all, regardless of what they do. I have two characters. One is a woman named Delilah who appears in my novel, the castaways and she likes to cook and entertain. And she's got the cute cocktail napkins. And so (laughs) that part of her is very much me. And then I have a holiday series named Margaret Quinn and she's a working mother. And to your point earlier, you know, I travel a lot for work. I'm, I'm gone. I have been gone a lot and I've got three children raising four children and it has been a sacrifice. And it it was, it was for her in the book. And So that part of Margaret I really connect with. But I want to change, tax a little bit and talk about mental health. You've discussed that you suffer from anxiety and you even wrote an entire novel called Anxious People. How did that book help you manage your own anxiety?
2: I started writing Anxious People coming out of therapy after I had a breakdown in 2017, which was just, well, I just had the... The classic breakdown where you everything just fell apart within me, and and uh, I had to go to therapy. And the first thing he told me was, "You don't suffer from stress. Stress is what the nurse at the ER has like two o'clock in in, in a Saturday morning. That's stress. What you suffer from is pressure, and and it's different. And we treat it differently. And then that that was a long journey for me. And my therapist now has." Know a very nice summer home and a boat, and, uh, <laughs> doing very well. It's but but it was a long, long journey for me, and and uh, you know trying to to find my way back to somewhat functioning. And that's also when my wife took over the company and, and started running the business part of it because I hated. No one tells you when you become a writer that you're also going to become the CEO of a company.
0: That
2: mm-hmm. no one tells you that it's just. You're expected now to figure everything out. So I think the first part of anxious people, this whole, there should be like, there should be like a driver's license to become an adult. The whole first part of anxious people is about that. Like we shouldn't, they shouldn't have let us become adults. We were not, we're not good at this. We're not prepared. Like we're not. We can't handle all of these things that are expected from us. And actually, people was very much my journey coming out of therapy and trying to. I started writing it just as a writing exercise because I I never thought I was going to publish it. I started writing as as a writing exercise because I couldn't write for a little while. I was so messed up, and uh, and the pressure got to me, and this this, this whole career thing got to me. And I had done a couple of U.S. tours and I was really like, I don't know if I want to do this. I don't know if this is the person I want to be. I'm not, I don't think it's making me a good person. I don't think I'm happy. I, I don't, I don't, You know. I, I don't think I'm a good parent. I don't think, you know, I was just feeling like I failed at everything. And so I started writing it as a writing exercise. Like maybe I can write about therapy and that will be my way of like, Finding out if I can still write and if I can still do this. And uh, that grew and grew and grew and grew. And then eventually I had this idea for maybe I can frame this as kind of a locked door mystery. Like maybe I can do that, but in a comedic sense. And maybe, and then if I do that well enough and I make it funny, then maybe I can really dive into the mental health things. Because I can't talk, you know, there's a certain kind of darkness in your head. You don't want to talk about if you can't make jokes about it. Mm-hmm. Defense mechanism. So, so that that's where it came from. And then, then I, I, so that was just my exploration.
0: And now a short break to thank our sponsor, Book of the Month. Think of something awesome. Rain on a steel roof awesome. Or receiving mail that isn't a bill. That smell when cake is ready in the oven. Actually, I'm talking about Book of the Month. They're cooler than a frozen cucumber cool. Why? Not only is it cool to see a company so dedicated to fiction, they also feature the best new books, including some of my own, and are always spotlighting new and emerging authors. They're the best at helping people read more and read better. For a limited time, get your first book for just $5 with offer code ELLIN, E-L-I-N, by visiting bookofthemonth.com. Something you may not realize is that when an author is about to have a book come out. The most exciting moment is when you find out that you have been a Book of the Month pick. Aww. I know. This has happened to me a few times, and it's always so exciting. My readers get excited. I'm excited because it allows my readers to have my new title in hardcover delivered to their house in the mail at a very reasonable price.
1: It's so fun, too, as readers, as a community, to choose those books, and as an Ellen fan, to like get that blue box and know that your new Ellen book for the summer is going to arrive is so exciting. I've been a member since 2016. Are you a member?
0: I've been a member since 2017 when they chose my novel, The Identicals.
1: That's amazing. And honestly, my mom is also a member because I get this for her for a gift every holiday. So I really recommend that.
0: Absolutely. And I love that they now have audiobooks. So you can choose every month either an audiobook or a hardcover.
1: Okay. So remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and use code Ellen, E-L-I-N, for a discount off your book. Wonderful. Thank you, Book of the Month. Thank you. One of my favorite parts of Anxious People was that you put this diverse group of people, all with anxiety, a young lesbian couple, a wealthy bank director, an elderly woman, two middle-aged married house flippers, and you put them in this situation. And there's this concept that we're all more alike than we are different. Do you agree with that concept, especially in a situation like that?
2: I do. And and there was this sense that I always look for small universes, small worlds, like, a man called Uwe is just one street. My grandmother has to tell you she's sorry. It's just one house. Anxious People is more or less just one apartment. Mm-hmm. Beartown is a whole town, but, but it's a small town. So I look for that claustrophobia, I think. And I also want people to be trapped with each other. Because it makes for good comedy. It's like inviting... Like, Anxious People was inviting inviting people... Like seating people at a at a dinner table in in the worst kind of way, like, who can I put next to this person that she will hate? I'm like, who, who can I put next to them, them that that they will really be annoyed by? because com- my comedy often comes from someone being annoyed by someone else. So it was that, but it was also this I wanted to put people in that because I felt that people are so vulnerable when they're looking for a home. If that makes sense, yep. Mm-hmm. It's your mer- most personal space. You go look at this apartment with strangers, and then if you end up moving in here, then this is going to be your most personal space. This is going to be the place where you go when you you, you know you lock yourself in, and, and this is like at times going to be the only place where you feel you can be yourself, or the only place where you feel safe, and and. It's such an incredible personal space. So you're so vulnerable when you're looking because you're, oh my God, I love this place. I love it, but what if I don't get it? What if what if I fall in love with this apartment now and I can't live here? I'm going to be heartbroken. Like you, So you have this whole, like, I love this place, but I can't, you know, you can't love it. Don't love it. Don't show anyone that you love it because the price will go up or they will i had this is this, this whole i felt there was a vulnerability and a comedy sense to it that i liked the idea that strangers trapped in a in a room and i felt this was the easiest one of the easiest way to trap people in a logical way from wildly different parts of society and background and then there was this idea of the hostage situation which is and also the this dysfunctional hostage taker that 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 no
1: well you really nailed it. But now I want to turn to film and TV adaptations. Ellen and I are huge film buffs, and A Man Called Otto came out last December, and I want to know how involved you were in this adaptation. And and speaking of nailing it, did Tom Hanks nail it in your opinion?
2: Well, there's a really long and long story. I mean, short the short version is that we we my wife and I was super, super proud of it. We we were very proud of the Swedish version of the film did extremely well and and we were super proud of it and then they started talking about making an American remake and we said you yeah. yeah, but that's never going to happen. And then uh, they came back and said, yeah, Tom Hanks wanted to agree. She's like, sure, sure he <laughs> does. And uh, so I, I think up until we went to Pittsburgh to watch the shoot I still thought like someone is going to... This is going to be a really elaborate practical joke by my friends to fly me to Pittsburgh and still thinking that Tom, Tom Hanks is going to make the movie. And regarding the involvement, my wife is very involved. So she, was, she was an executive producer and she's been an executive producer for a lot of our, pro, our projects. But she's very involved. She's in all the meetings. She's, because a movie is like 98% meetings. I'm not great at meetings. So my wife was very involved in that. I got to read a script. David McGee, who wrote the script is a big hero to me. He wrote, um, Finding Neverland Mm -hmm. and David and I just, we think alike. Like if I, if I had written movies, I would have liked to try to write them the way David writes them. Like we, we just connected. So, so I was just excited. And then they started like, we want to make these kind of changes because we want to make it into an American story. Like, if we want to make him into an American character, we want to make this an American story. And then there was subtle changes along the way. My wife and I have always had the, 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 the idea that when it comes to movies, that you find the best possible people to work with that you can, and you try to have all the fights before you sign the contract. And then you sign the contracts, and then you have to trust them. You have to move out of their way, and you have to let them they have to go looking for something too. Just like when I'm writing a book, like I have to go looking for something. It's like, I don't know your experience with editors and publishers, but sometimes I have to tell editors like, yeah, I know, I know it, you know, I know it's not finished. It's a first draft, but I'm looking for something right I'm out here looking for something. You're, you're, you know, I'm inviting you to go with me while I look for stuff, but I don't know what it is yet. Yeah. And, Making a movie is the same. Like they have to go looking for things too, and they can't do that if I keep watching over their shoulder. I think,
0: right?
2: It's an interpretation of your work. It's not the same as your work. It's an interpretation. This is how we saw it. This is right. What I. This is what I. And they have to put things in there from themselves. From from you know, in the case of a man called Otto, I think a lot of it is well, there's a little bit of David's dad in there. And I think there's a little bit about from Tom's perspective, is a little bit of him aging and his him coming to terms with him himself aging. I think there's a lot of in there with Mark Forster, a lot of personal things for him about loneliness and about struggling with loneliness and struggling. So I I, I think they all found something in there. I think Mariana Trevino, who place the neighbor of Otto is, is she found something in there as an immigrant like she found an immigrant story that was really personal to her uh, that she could connect to and and you have to and the only way that that can happen is if i'm not constantly hovering over them like i think so I, I try to we try to find the best people we can to work with and then we you know we try to trust them we, we try to you know, me and my wife often remind ourselves that, yeah, 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 but they're looking for something. And let's, you know, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. Let's trust them and we'll see where it goes. Right. But in the end, it was an incredibly emotional experience. It's really hard to describe, but there's a lot of, but I think that the, the greatest part of this was when the Swedish movie came out. I was so, I I had such a problem handling it. I don't know, have you dealt with fame and being on TV (laughs) and doing interviews and all that, but I did not handle it well. I was just so stressed out. We didn't even go to the premiere in Sweden because I was just so stressed out. I was just, I, I, my anxiety levels were just through the roof. So I think we left the country when it had a premiere. So when they made the American version, it was like a chance for me to do it over. So we went to Pittsburgh, we saw the shoot. We brought the kids and our kids are 10 and 13 now and they, under, like, they understand it now, they know what it is. They were very young when the Swedish movie came out. So we had this little moment standing on a hill looking down at, at the set. The, you know, I could stand there with my wife and my kids and say, you know, that Tom Hanks is walking around down there playing something that I made up. Like I sat at a kitchen table
1: how did now you do he's... mentally in that space at the Man Called Auto premiere?
2: Uh, not well. <laughs> but I think I did better. better than the than... Swedish one? You went. Uh, better than the Swedish one. I, I, it was, I think we talked a lot, lot more, my wife and I, we talked a lot more like, like we're going we're gonna to view this as an, as an adventure. And I, my trick was to get into a mental space where I feel like this is the last run, And then they're going to figure it out. That I'm a hoax. Like they're gonna figure out that I'm a fraud. That I never knew what I was doing. Like they're they're gonna figure it out now. But this is like let's enjoy this. It was like being on the run from the police or something. (laughs) uh, I'm just gonna try to enjoy it. So we did. We really did enjoy it. And this time around, and we could bring the kid. The kids, you know, the, the 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 whole crew came to Sweden, and you know that was a big deal to have like that big premiere in, in Stockholm and being able to bring the kids. and So it was fun.
1: Well, I'm really also, proud of you for doing it. You deserve yes. to be there. Before we come to a close, we always like to end with asking our guests what they're reading. So what are you reading, Frederick?
2: I reread Douglas Adams, <laughs> Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because I always reread things over the summer, it's, I always have something that I read like years ago. Like I'm going to reread that. But I've also been reading this book called "The Other Side of Sadness." It's research about grief, like how people handle grief and what grief is, and uh, people who get stuck in in grieving and can't get out of it, and what what that is psychologically. And because I have this idea that I was going to write the book about about grieving, about the, I, I'm have this I have this idea that I'm going to write a comedy about death. I will like. Anxious people was maybe a comedy about anxiety. I'll I'll try to write a comedy about that. Is that I mean, what you're working how- on right now, writing wise? Well, it's one of the things. That project is very early. That's why I'm reading the other side of sadness because I'm trying to figure that out. I'm reading. I'm writing something now that I don't know when it's coming out. I've been rewriting it. I don't know how many times. People are losing their patience with me, but I I have this. It's a it's a coming of age story. It's about a group of teenagers growing up. It's about art, and it's about that, that, you know, that thing that you have as a teenager. Like, I want to do something. I don't know what, but I want to do something. I want to create something. I'm not sure what yet, and it's about that search. So maybe... More along the lines of the the teenagers in Bear Town. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I can't wait I'm to very get
0: my hands on it. I know.
2: Well, Frederick, thank, thank you so you. much for taking <laughs> the time. We really appreciate
1: <laughs> we it. We
0: really appreciate it. Thank
1: you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much.
0: Hi, book lovers, Ellen Hildebrand
1: and Tim Ehrenberg
0: here again. Just a few closing notes before you leave. We want to thank our wonderful premier sponsors Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, the Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina, and Nantucket Looms for their generous support in the
1: making of this show. And we also want to thank our team behind the scenes, beginning with N Magazine. We want to thank our producer, Emmy Duncan, our technical director, Kit Noble, and our editor, Brian Murphy.
0: We hope you'll keep tuning in for more book talks featuring a stellar lineup of special guests all season long.
1: So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: See you next time and happy Happy reading. reading.